Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number seven of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And tonight we continue to see the aftermath of the revolution. And I hope to get as far as Terra this evening and some of the uh, early discussions between the ambassadors from the newly established quasi-nation of Free Luna and uh, the uh, Lunar Authority. Oh, hang on. Uh, there we go. I, there's always at least one button I forget to hit. <laughs> Presumably, I think uh, you'd think eventually I would kind of learn what's going on. Uh, but, you know, I guess the problem is I keep adding new wrinkles, so there's always more buttons to hit. Okay. Anyway. Here we are. Uh, so uh, looking forward to digging into the text here with you again this evening. One quick uh, announcement before we start. I wanted to make sure that everybody knew about our two upcoming regional moots. The regional moots are back, uh, <laughs> at least for now. They're back. Uh, and uh, we are. I am so looking forward to getting together with folks. Um, so number one. The very first regional moot that is coming back is New England moot right here in my backyard. It is going to be on September 25th, Saturday, September 25th, uh, uh, at in Durham, New Hampshire. Uh, so actually right near the campus of the University of New Hampshire. So that's where we're going to be. Um, uh, on the 25th of September, the, uh, the, the title of the moot, the topic of the moot is Second Breakfast. Uh, more to come there. There will be a, a call for proposals uh, there soon and more information. Um, the registration should be open for that uh, uh, pretty soon. But anyway, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And then Middle Moot out in Iowa it's going to be in Waterloo, Iowa on the 9th of October. Um, so those are our first two moots. New England Moot, September 25th in Durham, New Hampshire, and then Middle Moot in Waterloo, Iowa on the 9th of October. Um, registration should be open for both relatively soon. Both of them are going to be... Um, both of them are going to be uh, hybrid moots. My, uh, my goal is that all of our moots are going to be fully hybrid this year. Um, so you should be able to sign up both for uh, to, to come in person and to attend remotely uh, as well. And for the remote attendees, we're hoping to have the full um, uh, sort of moot hub experience. If you've attended our uh, myth, one of our myth moots over the last couple of years, uh, then you will have seen... Uh, mood hub, so we'll, you know, we, where we have um, uh, we have a, a Slack workspace open and uh, the ability to uh, chat and talk back and forth in lots of different ways and interact both between the people uh, who are there and the remote people as well as uh, the remote remote people among each other. Um, so anyway, that was um, uh, uh, that was. Uh, it's been a lot of fun the last couple of times we've done it. And I'm looking forward to rolling this out uh, for our regional moots. Um, Jocelyn, I agree. The Slack chat uh, is maybe the best part. I had, I have loved that actually. And it's, it's one of the things Jocelyn uh, from MythMoot this past year, 
um, being there in person, um, I was able to participate uh, in the Slack chat for some of the time, um, but I missed it a bunch of the rest of the time because there were, you know, there's many times when, you know, I was just doing other things, like when other things that were physically in the room were drawing my attention away from my phone, you know, or my iPad. And, um, uh, and I, there were, there were, so there was a lot of the, the dynamics of Slack chat that I missed. Um, it's one of the things that uh, I've been reflecting on a lot since MythMoot is, you know, as always, and this is the same thing, you know, back when I was developing, um, you know, Signum's online teaching model, one of the initial uh, discoveries, I guess, I'm not claiming to have like discovered this for the first time in all humanity. I mean, like discovered for myself um, when I started teaching online was that, you know, a lot of people think of it first and foremost as like, well, it's not the same as teaching in person. Well, of course, it's not the same. Um, but most of the time when people said that, what they kind of meant was, you know, it's like inferior in every way. Like it's never going to be able to like be as good as this. And in some ways, you know, in some ways that's kind of true. But the thing that I that I discovered is that with all of these things, there are advantages and disadvantages. There are some ways, of course, in which, you know, there are some things that are simply harder. There are some that are, there are some things that just don't work as well as naturally um, when you're uh, remote as when you are in person. But there are some things that work better. Um, there are some things that are actively advantages. There are some things that are better uh, in a remote interface than they are when you're there in person. Um, and that's certainly one, Jocelyn. It's, to me, it's one of the biggest examples of how... I mean, no, like a, a remote conference is not the same. Like it's not the same as being able to be in the same room and to see people and uh, and to be in contact with people like that's 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 really special. It's not the same, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that are actually better. And it is one of the things I think is really, really cool. Um, how many times I mean, I have this experience all the time. How many times you go to a big conference and there are people there? Right. And you never get a chance to interact with them. Right. Because you're on the other side of the room the whole time. Right. And there have been so many times I've been to a conference like that and I've come to the end and I've like seen a person at the end and be like, man, we've been like ships passing in the night. I've never had the chance to sit down and talk to that person. Whereas um, it's much easier uh, when you're home and you're in a remote conference experience to be able to be like, I I'm going to make sure I'm going to, you know, pass that person a note at the same time I'm having two other conversations and, and listening to a talk and all and a bunch of other things. It's just a lot easier to engage in those kinds of ways. So anyway, it's one of the reasons why I'm really excited uh, to have the hybrid mood experience this year. Um, they're going to be a lot of uh, big, um, uh, big, uh, really cool opportunities uh, to just kind of continue to lean into this whole thing, right? And get the most, best of both worlds, have the best of both worlds available uh, for remote attendance, for live attendance. Uh, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty cool. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, it is an education to be chatting during the talk sometimes. Uh, yeah, I agree. And uh, Jocelyn, my favorite part of MythMoot was chatting with Brenton while he was <laughs> while his talk was going on. Right? That was uh, that was that was pretty cool. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. But I'm not going to ramble on any more about Moot. So just remember those two dates: September 25th, New England, New Hampshire, and uh, um, October 9th, uh, Middle Moot uh, in Iowa. All right, but let us get back into the text. We were right about to talk about the Uncanny Valley. Um, but, before, but before I do that, I've been resisting 
talking about this because the uncanny valley is a relatively modern uh, sort of concept or theory. It's it's an observation that has been made. Um, it postdates the text. Um, so I want, I mean, this is a really interesting example of it, or at least a lot of people I think would take it so. But I also think there's potentially more going on than that. Well, no, I already talked about it. Let, let me just, let me begin with the Uncanny Valley. Um, the concept of the Uncanny Valley, and I'm not an expert on this, so uh, please, those of you who know this better than I can please uh, suggest in the comments maybe some other ways in which I could explain it if I'm not doing a good enough job. But my basic understanding of the Uncanny Valley is that there's uh, there's basically a sort of an upward curve. If you if you if you graph similarity to human beings to like a you know a, a, like a, a, a normal healthy human being right um, along the x-axis and you plot. Uh, like a sense of uh, familiarity or comfort um, or even affection um, uh, from people towards them. On the other hand, it's it's it starts for a long time as a rising curve. So, like you know, when you start off with something like um, um, yeah, a, a crude piece of machinery that doesn't look at all or doesn't look or act at all like a human, right? So it's really low on the x-axis. We tend to feel less affection for it, right? But the more human it looks and acts, uh, and this is not just machines, right? Even things like uh, stuffed animals and stuff like that um, will kind of go in this direction, right? So like the more, um, the more human for for a long time. The more human it looks and acts, the more affection we invest in it, the more, the more familiar it seems, the more comfortable we are with it. But the, the uncanny valley phenomenon is that there comes a point, there comes a point of the, where when you begin to get quite close to human proximity, when all of a sudden that sense of familiarity, that sense of comfort, that sense even of affection drops, like not just back down towards zero, but way past zero uh, to fear, anxiety, discomfort, um, when it begins to seem really uncanny. So again, there's one thing to have um, a robot, you know, that kind of still clunks and moves and yet is, you know, like the uh, Danger Will Robinson robot, right, from Flash Gordon back in the 70s, right? Doesn't really trigger the happy, the uncanny, the happy valley, the uncanny valley effect, right? Because it's not enough like a human being. It's kind of like a human being, so you can kind of invest uh, uh, in it, but... Um, but it doesn't make you uncomfortable, right? Uh, but things that are in that kind of uncanny valley zone are like robots that get to look too human, right? That it begins to creep you out. Um, or things like, um, that wasn't Flash Gordon. What was that, Arthur? I'm sorry. I'm, t I'm totally losing it. Who, who, who is it? What was that? I'm totally sorry. Lost in space. Sorry. My apologies. My apologies. Um, yes, the, lo the lost in space robot. Anyway, the point is, um, like zombies are also there, right? Um, that the zombies also tend to uh, um, um, trigger the uncanny valley thing. And by the way, so do prosthetics um, generally. Like a lot of people get that same creepy feeling. And you'll remember, of course, Manny talks about that a lot. Manny is very aware of this phenomenon when it comes to prosthetics. In fact, in the passage that we were reading for tonight, um, we even got to the point where he very cannily um, played on that, 
right? When he hides a recorder in his prosthetic arm because he knows that even experienced police officers are usually so uncomfortable around prosthetics uh, that they won't want they they won't search it uh, as as you know as intensely as they would search other other places. And so, in fact, he gets away with smuggling a recorder in uh, in his prosthetic. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So um, and Ellen, you're absolutely right. Um, in animation, you can get the same thing. Like uh, the the CG figures, which look like almost perfectly human, but are not human, right? Um, can also trigger the uh, the uncanny valley response, a, a, a like sense of revulsion, right? So it is something uh, definitely a a, a, a a fact there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, but um. Yeah, uh, Stephen Covers pointing to CGI Tarkin from Rogue One. Um, yeah, now, yes, the, as, you know, as Stephen, as you're pointing out, there does have to be, when you cross a certain point where the, it's really undistinguishable, um, it, it, it often will cease to trigger the Uncanny Valley effect. Um, like, uh, so the uncanny valley is the description of that dip in the graph because it does rise afterwards. Um, uh, and so Stephen, I agree that, uh, data from Star Trek is a really interesting kind of test case because he doesn't trigger the hat, the, un- the, I keep on call it the happy valley effect. It's just not what it's called. Um, he doesn't really, uh, uh, trigger that, uh, necessarily, but I would argue Stephen that he doesn't trigger it because he's easily mistakable for a human. And I would also add the context is really interesting. Like on the, like the things about him that don't look human. I mean, it's not like he's actually mistaken. I mean, his like complexion is pretty clearly non-human. Right. But then again, so is Worf's. Right. So, I mean, that, that is to say, yes, he looks a little alien, but so do, you know, the other aliens there. Um, so in context, his, the difference between data and the other humans that are on uh, that are in Star Trek, you know, like on the crew there is I think he's not in like a different category uh, in that same way. But it, but it's interesting. Anyway, I don't know. Um, I'm just saying that. Um, yeah. And David also points out that data pr- probably uh, say David points out that data doesn't trigger it because he's played by an actual actor just wearing makeup. Um, yes. Yes. Um, I think that that's also part of it. I mean, it might be possible that some would find that sense of creepiness triggered when like, you know, somebody opens a hatch in data's head and stuff like that. But again, um, there's still some, uh, uh, there's still some, um, uh, you know, interesting elements there. Anyway, whatever it's that, that phenomenon itself is an intriguing one. And a lot of people have been interested in that and, and studied that. And this is certainly a fascinating instance, right? That many people would point back to, um, to, you know, show Heinlein is, you know, well ahead of his time, well before this phenomenon had really been studied, we see him aware of it, right? Um, Manny seems on the one hand to be having an uncanny valley response, right? That Mike, he was, he was cool with Mike. He's never, never had any problem with Mike, but now when Mike actually manifests a fake human face, which he knows to be, which Manny knows to be fake and which he can tell is still fake. It's when he smiles, moving lips and jaw and touching tongue to lips, a quick gesture and I was frightened. 
Um, and that sounds exactly like an Uncanny Valley reaction. But I don't want to just be... Re- so there, I want to start and end by not just talking about the Uncanny Valley because it's too tempting just to kind of observe that and say... There it is, the Uncanny Valley. Wow, how about that? So now let's move on. Um, Because there's more going on here. We have to understand this in the context of the story that we're reading here, right? Um, And the thing that we have to focus on here, I believe, um, is Manny's relationship with Mike and Manny's perception of Mike. Remember, this comes right after Manny's apparently first instance of underestimating Mike. He doesn't think Mike can pull this off, though one wonders, does he not want Mike to pull this off? And here's the other reason that um, I don't want to just reduce this to like, a, hey, look, it's the Uncanny Valley kind of thing, is I also I think that there's more going. I think that this fits into the story in other kinds of ways. That is, Manny is our Manny's our narrator. Right. Manny is our is is the lens through which we are looking not only at this story, but at this world. And he has been a guide to this world. Of course, he's a native loony and and has, uh, uh, you know, helped us to kind of acclimate to that world. He also has been the one person who first and foremost understood Mike's personhood, right? And accepted Mike without question uh, as a person and never seemed to have any problems with it. You'll remember, if there were any distinction between Mike and any other person, um, Manny actually felt more strongly um, for, um, uh, for, for Mike in a sense, so, so, I mean, you, I'm referring back to the scene. Remember when Wyo initially uh, suggested blowing Mike up, right? I just merely saw Manny's uh, access to Mike as an opportunity to sabotage the authority, right? Um, and you'll remember the strength of Manny's emotional reaction to Wyo's suggestion there. And the terms in which Wyo was, you know, he thought that was, it was, it was appalling, right, to murder Mike in that way. Um, and she obviously wasn't looking at it as murder, but then she qualified it by saying, look, I would, for, for our cause, like I believe in our cause so strongly, I would sacrifice my own life and the life of my closest friends for this. So she came back by essentially saying, it's not about, um, you know, I'm doing murder uh, here. I was like, yes, I am willing to do murder. Right. I'm willing to do murder and willing to die myself for the sake of this cause. So it isn't necessarily that like uh, so the fact that it you know would be murder wasn't going to sort of set her back. But um, uh, but the. But you remember Manny's response, right, that Mike was unique, right? It's not just Mike wasn't just another person. He wasn't even uh, like compared to a, he wasn't just thinking of, of, of like, that's my best friend. And like, you know, I wouldn't sacrifice the life of my best friend for this, which of course, remember why had just said that she would do. Um, it wasn't just a personal claim like that, like, you know, on, on personal on Manny's part. Um, Mike was special, 
Mike was unique. He might be the only person of his kind in the entire universe for all they knew, right? I mean, they, they, they don't know, right? They've never, no one has ever encountered a person like Mike before. And so therefore he's special. So again, not only has Manny accepted Mike as a person, if anything, he accepts Mike as a very, very special person. So I don't see any reason uh, before this point for us to think that Mike is that he still has some kind of asterisk next to Mike's personhood in his head, right? That he's, that he's think you know, like, you know, our, our, cause that's one possible interpretation of this, right? One possible interpretation of this is that we are now seeing this sort of true reservation that Manny has always had finally coming to the, to the, to the fore, right? Finally being revealed, um, that really when push came to shove, um, he didn't see Mike as an equal person. And now that Mike, you know, seems to be stepping over yet another line. Like, is he worried about Mike getting too high, right? Getting, getting into his business, right? Crossing the line between sentient computer and, you know, operating like another human being. Um, uh, that's one possible reading of this. I find myself very resistant, um, uh, to that reading. Um, uh, that, um, um, I find myself very resistant to that reading. I don't think, I don't think it holds. I don't think it holds well. It, it works. It works as a reading of this passage in isolation, right? It's a like perfectly good theory. Um, it would explain this passage. But taken together with the other passages that we see, both before and afterwards, I don't, I don't see it. I don't think that it fits the big picture. Um, so if not that, if that's not it, then what? Um, and I'm not really sure. I'm wondering, we, we had spoken before. We'd spoken before about Mike having the um the avuncular nature of Mike's relationship or sorry Manny's relationship with Mike right he had always had this quasi i mean i am calling it avuncular because i don't want to quite go so far as paternal but it was almost parental um uh that kind of uh, the kind of authority that he claimed you know he would give him orders and he'd correct him and and Mike would accept his correction without question there was never any question before as to who was the more competent of the two, who relied upon it. Now he, he was, he relied upon Mike and there's many things that he uh, has been relying upon Mike for. And we saw how much, um, remember when we were looking at the passages about um, where Manny was talking about the complete trust that they were investing in Mike, right? The gamble that they took on Mike's loyalty. So again, not just on Mike's technical abilities, right? Um, not just on his, uh, you know, not just on his, uh, you know, sort of tr truthfulness, but on his personhood, right? On his loyalty that he would have, that he did in fact have loyalty and uh, personhood in, in a way that could be understood if, if he's wrong, Right. That's the gamble. If, if Manny's wrong about that, if he's not really a person in the same way, if he doesn't have the same values, if he if he doesn't get it or really want to get it in the same way, um, then 
you know, he could, Mike could easily have betrayed them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, Arthur, as you say, Mike is now stepping forward as more of an equal to Manny. And I wonder if that's not part of what's behind Manny's resistance. Because again, it's conspicuous to me that here Manny is the one and really the primary one in the room of the three humans there. He's the primary one who is resistant to the idea that it can happen, that Mike can do it. He doesn't, it's not just that he doesn't want Mike to, he doesn't think he can, he doesn't believe he can, or he doesn't want to believe perhaps that he can. Um, and yeah, so I wonder if it's, if it is that sense of equality, right? This was, I don't know, did Manny have some kind of investment in that? Like Mike was his protege from the beginning, his protege, Right. He was training him. He was teaching him. He was helping him. He was showing pity on him, right? The poor, lonely machine who had no friends and who was perfectly disrespected, right, by everybody. The the disrespect they were showing him was so perfect, they literally did not notice that he was a person, right? Um, And Manny had pity on him, and that's a good thing, right? But that... um, uh, that that dynamic, right? Um, and again, I, I would not be comfortable characterizing this as like Mike not wanting to lose, or sorry, Manny not wanting to lose his place of superiority. I don't think it's about superiority exactly. Um, but there is a question of like, what is what is Manny's role? If he's not there to be the computer man, Right? Um, then what's he for? If he's working for the computer, if he's a peer with the computer or even um, working under the computer, not just in the theoretical um, way of, you know, that he is technically, that Mike is technically the chairman, um, then what is he? Where is he? What is his role? Yeah. Kit, I think that seems to me, Arthur and, and Kit and Devorah, I think, are exactly thinking along the same lines of what I'm trying to get at, which is it's, it's like a parent whose kid has grown up, right? Um, that seems to be the—that's I, I, how I would interpret this. Um, and his fright—I was frightened when he saw him do this— Yes, I I totally believe there's an uncanny valley effect going on here, but he's frightened because he is forced to confront the fact he really can do it. And think about what it is. What he was saying to Mike, when he was saying to Mike, I don't think you can do it, what he was talking about was, I don't think you have the computational capacity to manage it. But um, there's more to it, isn't there? I mean, remember from the beginning, Manny's number one role, responsibility with Mike was to teach him how to be a human, right? He sucked at it, right? As far as like understanding, you know, from understanding what's funny and what's not funny to the, you know, his diction and the way he talked and uh, and the kind of gaffes that he would make and Manny would have to correct him and the kind of misunderstandings he would have, Um 
you know, he was this he was this dorky genius kid, right? As uh, uh, you know, a genius, a, a you know, a, a child with a long string of degrees, as he said before. Now the kid's all grown up, right? It's not just the computational issue here; it's the human issue. Can he really human well enough in order to pull this off? Um, even if he can manage all of the computations involved, and he can. He can. Um, yeah. And Stephen Keene, I, I, I would definitely accept that uh, as well. Uh, Stephen suggests that Manny realizes that he doesn't fully understand Mike. He assumed there were limits and realizes he doesn't know what the limits are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, I, th- that that element sounds to me very right. And I think that that would explain his being frightened here as well. Um, uh, absolutely. And um, one of you was pointing out before, um, Arthur, yeah, I also find it really interesting that Wyo does not drop a beat. Absolutely. Um, that's why I put that last uh, part of the quote in here. Uh, you know, Wyo's immediate comment about just she starts critiquing his, you know, just kind of giving him tips, right? Your hair doesn't look quite right. Um, she does not bothered at all, right? And part of that is probably her computational ignorance. She doesn't understand how difficult is the thing that he's doing. And so she, like, doesn't know enough to be awed at this particular moment. That's part of it, I think. Um but her lack of reaction, um, she has always seen Mike as at least a peer, right? From her for, after her first conversation um, with uh, Mike, then Michelle, right later on in the night, um, she has been interacting with Mike as a peer um, and has not had that kind of parental relationship with him, um, and. Um, and she is immediately, you know, she responds much more, um, much more kind of comfortably uh, with the whole situation here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now, Carrie, I agree that you're right that he doesn't, Mike doesn't know, Manny doesn't know where Mike's limits are but that there is going to be a limit probably somewhere. Right. Um, and there is going to be some anxiety on Manny's part about when is he going to hit it? And it certainly, this could backfire terribly, right? If he, um, does something horribly wrong. Um, I mean, this is a huge gamble, uh, to have Mike appear on video like this because it's not going to take a terribly, uh, big mistake for it to be apparent. Right. And therefore to kind of give away the whole game disastrously. But I don't think that that's the kind of fear that he's having here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And Ellen, I think you might be right that this is one of the maybe one of the first times Mike is confronted by the line between human and not human, that he doesn't seem to be interested in thinking thoroughly through. Maybe. Uh, I mean, again, the line between human and not human is goes right down the middle of Manny's own body, right? So on the one hand, he's real comfortable with that frontier, much more comfortable than most people are. Um, but, um, but yeah, maybe that very fact itself means that he has not, I don't know, kind of dealt with it in the same way that others have, uh, perhaps. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. But I agree, Stephen. It's it's certainly not just that he's afraid of a disastrous mistake, because I agree with you. He would have been more... He would have been feeling dread at the 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 failed attempts earlier on uh, prior to that. But anyway, let's um, let's move on. But this kicks off the theme that I want to focus on tonight, and that is Manny's role, right? Manny's role and Manny's concept of his role. Um, one of the things I find this central passage, the whole book two, for me the biggest, most fascinating thing going on in all of book two is what Heinlein does with his first-person narrator. It is so interesting to me. And it's particularly interesting because it's almost invisible on a first reading. It's almost invisible. Um, And I I assert that. I mean, when I assert that, of course, I should say that doubtless— more perceptive readers than I probably would pick it up on a first reading, perhaps. But I found with my own reading that not only did I not really catch this stuff on a first reading, I didn't even catch it on a second reading when that second reading was um, at a gap, right? So this, um, I'm like, basically, as, as I'm teaching my way through this, I'm basically reading it for the third time. I read it for the first time uh, several years back, um, not too many years back, maybe five years ago, um, I read this book for the first time. And then I reread it um, just before, uh, like when uh, when it was just about time to sit down and start doing the book, I usually kind of just do a, a, a full reading through uh, before I then go back to the beginning and go through chapter by chapter with the class. Um, so as I, I my, 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 Reading along, uh, you know, preparing week by week uh, for classes is basically my third reading of the of the book. Um, it's my third reading of the book in pretty close proximity to the second reading, but at a distant remove from the first reading of several years. And um, neither the first nor the second reading, the two that were separated by five years, um, at neither one of those was I aware. Was I really uh, um, um, sensitive to what was going on with the narrator, um, with Manny? Uh, and his uh, and his figure and and he does. It's not that he becomes an unreliable narrator per se, but thing after thing continues to happen, which sort of um, distances me. I find from Manny um, and begins to. make me see his own role in the story differently. Um, Differently than he tells it and differently than he seems to experience it. Um, And it's it's a very difficult and complicated effect that Heinlein creates by doing this. Um, Especially the first-person narrator. With a first-person narrator, the kind of um, default position, right? Is you're you're kind of like perched on the shoulder of the first person narrator and you're seeing you're seeing everything through them, right? You're just you only literally only see what they describe to you. You only know what they tell you about and you get cued how to feel about things by how they respond to things usually, right? Now within that context, it is possible for a, a for a storyteller to create distance between you and the first person narrator 
right? Um, the first person narrator can say things or do things or describe things in a way that leads you to say, to think, okay, hang on a second. Maybe, maybe the, maybe the first person narrator is wrong about this. Maybe they're not seeing the whole picture. And, the the storyteller can bring you to a place where you see more and understand more than the first person narrator does, but it's hard to do well. Um, and I think that uh, I think that Heinlein does it very interestingly here, uh, in especially in this uh, in this second part of the book. Um, and this is one of the places where we I think we we begin we begin to see it, um, Manny. Manny's discomfort here, his discomfort and even his fright here, um, is this is a moment where, and we talked about Mike coming, kind of coming out into his own, uh, 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 Mike on YouTube is, uh, uh, saying it's almost like he's uh, a debutante going out, coming out into society to be seen sort of except under a false name. Right. So it's still not quite the coming out, uh, party exactly. But, but, but again, I, but, but I see the parallel. It's, it's sort of like that. Right. But there is a sense in which he's here kind of passing. He is certainly no longer the protege anymore. Right. He's no longer the pupil. Um, and is at the very least coming into a real, an, a real and new kind of equality. And so, we're given a hint. We're given a. We're given a sense that Manny's position is different here, right? That Manny's relationship, not just with Mike, but even with the revolution itself, is perhaps beginning to change. And we'll continue to look at that. We talked for the rest of the night. I sent up for coffee twice, and Mike Adam had his carton renewed. When I ordered sandwiches, he asked Jinwala to send out for some. I caught a glimpse of Albert Jinwala in profile, a typical babu, polite and faintly scornful. Hadn't known what he looked like. Mike ate while we ate, sometimes mumbling around a mouthful of food. When I asked, professional interest, Mike told me that, after he had built picture, had picture built up, he had programmed most of it for automatic and gave his attention just to facial expressions. But soon I forgot it was fake. Mike Adam was talking with us by video, was all much more convenient than by phone. By 0300, we had policy settled. Then Mike rehearsed speech. Prof found points he wanted to add. Mike made revisions. Then we decided to get some rest. Even Mike Adam was yawning. Though, although in fact, Mike held fort all through night, guarding transmissions to Terra, keeping complex walled off, listening at many phones. Prof and I shared big bed. Wyo stretched out on couch. I whistled lights out. For once, we slept without weights. Manny accepts him, right? He has that moment, right? There's that moment. But again, I don't think this is, a, you know, part of a, like, now, uh, you know, simmering resentment that's been tamped down again. I, I really don't see that. Um, he's adjusted. He was taken aback. He was surprised. Surprised by Mike's capability, uh, technical capability. Surprised by Mike's ability to person, right? To human, uh, to to that he could so convincingly. Um, and notice, by the way, we see a direct parallel to the way he was filling in background noises, the kind of like, um, sorry, I was just swallowing something there, right? Kind of biological background noises that he was giving to make his phone calls more uh, persuasive. We now see Mike practicing um, on camera as well. But also, I think we see Mike again, being fairly subtle, right, in helping even his three oldest uh, friends, right, Manny, Prof, and Wyo, 
to begin to be comfortable uh, seeing him as an equal, just another human, right? Um, we're all eating together, right? Um, we're all, uh, uh, we're all, you know, uh, you know, I'm, he's calling out for coffee and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, again, we see Mike more comfortable, or Manny more comfortable here. But notice the picture that really does begin to emerge, right? Manny is, um, I like where this ends. They're exhausted, right? It's three o'clock in the morning. They've been working for a long time. Um, uh, Prof, Wyo, and Manny are all fatigued, right? They're exhausted. Um, so exhausted, they're going to give themselves a little treat and sleep without weights, right? Um, you know, the, uh, the Terra preparation weights. Um, and Mike, out of politeness, is yawning. Right, echoing their yawns and and acting tired too, but not only is he not tired and not going to sleep, right? And in fact, as Manny goes on to add, uh, is going to be is holding the fort all through the night. We have to remember what else is happening, right? That whole time that Mike was doing that, talking with them and yawning and uh, 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 getting sandwiches and stuff like that. He was presumably also having other conversations with other comrades who are calling in on the phone, right? As we know, Mike is capable of speaking to several people on the phone at the same time, right? So um, Mike, there was a sense in which Mike was clearly less than human before, right? He was clearly a machine who was attempting to be human, right? He was, he was, you know, had these incredible capabilities was amazingly smart and yet was still the wooden marionette who was trying to learn how to be a real boy, right? Um, now he is not only uh, successfully blending in with everybody else, but he's doing that with one hand while he's also doing all these other things with one hand at one time. He is, um, at this this moment now when he's revealed himself on camera, right, he seems to have like suddenly flipped from being subhuman, personhood perhaps, but that sense of him being subhuman, right? Not really getting humans, not really un understanding the full, com and now, now to being actually, um, being actually superhuman. Um, he can do the human thing, right? At the same time as he does a whole bunch of other things simultaneously. Um, yeah. Okay. Now it's time to convene the Congress. Lots of interesting things here. One female, most were men, but women made up for it in silliness, had a long list she wanted made permanent laws about private matters. No more plural marriage of any sort. No divorces. No fornication. Had to look that one up. No drinks stronger than 4% beer. Church services only on Saturdays and all else to stop that day. Air and temperature and pressure engineering lady? Phones and capsules? A long list of drugs to be prohibited and a shorter list dispensed only by licensed physicians. What is a licensed physician? Healer I go to has a sign reading practical doctor. Makes book on side, which is why I go to him. Look, lady, aren't any medical schools in Luna? Then I mean. She even wanted to make gambling illegal. 
If a loony couldn't roll double or nothing, he would go to a shop that would, even if dice were loaded. Thing that got me was not her list of things she hated, since she was obviously crazy as a cyborg, but fact that always somebody agreed with her prohibitions. Must be a yearning deep in human heart to stop other people from doing as they please. Now, there is a lot to unpack here, right? Um, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, and we might as well begin uh, with his crack about the women making up for it and silliness. Um, if one wants to find uh, evidence to suggest that uh, Heinlein, despite the fact that, uh, b- despite the way that he has uh, um, uh, described loony society and its relationship to women, um, if you want to find evidence, uh, you know that that Heinlein has a, a, a sort of pervasive um, anti-feminist bias, you will be able to find evidence uh, for that, um, uh, and. At the very least, Manny, thinking about this from within the character of, uh, of Manny himself, um, it suggests that Manny himself has a, a kind of a complicated, in some ways, relationship with women. On the one hand, he loves and reveres, um, he loves his wives, um, clearly has a reverence for women, which is common in loony society, and yet um, that reverence kind of doesn't go all the way down to the ground. You know what I mean? Um, he does, he does not simply see women as like superior creatures. He's not living in the kind of, uh, sort of fantasy world that medieval courtly lovers talk about where they claim that they believe that, you know, uh, women are absolutely superior in all ways. Um, I, I say claim because, I don't think there's any reason to think that any of the medieval courtly love poets who talked that way actually believed that or lived in that world. But, um, um, yeah, Carrie says Manny keeps women in their roles, their loony roles. Yes, there clearly are still roles. He, he does, um, he doesn't view women as superior. He does, he protects their rights and he is just exactly as ready uh, to go on a murderous rampage for vengeance when he hears about the rape and murder of two women, as any other loony is, right? And we talked about that before. Um, And yet he clearly does um, believe women have different roles. He does not look at them as equals, uh, exactly. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stephen suggests that uh, the tunnel ceilings probably aren't high enough to put women on pedestals. Possibly so. Yeah, they'd be low to the ground uh, pedestals. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, so here's this lady who wants to pass all of these rules, right? Um, she she wants to uh, um, make all this stuff happen. Um. She even wanted to make gambling illegal, if you can believe that. Um, Now, he's not surprised that she has this long list of things that she hates, right? And notice, of course, how he characterizes this. He says, you know, this is... um, 
people generally aren't wanting to protect things. They're wanting to outlaw things. Um, and uh, he doesn't get it, right? Thing that got me was not her list of things she hated, since she was obviously crazy as a cyborg, but fact that always somebody agreed with her prohibitions. Why is it that there's, I mean, she's apparently not just an outlier, right? There are other people who think that way too. Now, of course, this is another one of those earthworm gut checks, right? As of course, many of the things, many of these, <laughs> these things are very similar to actual earth laws, right? Um, and so to hear Manny rattle off these laws, not all of which are earth laws, right? But, um, you know, many of them are in fact laws or have been laws, uh, or are very similar to other laws, um, uh, such as to be only, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, parodies of those laws. Um, and, um, not, I don't think there's a single one of them that would sound on earth totally unreasonable in all contexts, right? That is, there, there are places where many of these things are mostly true, um, or at least, ha again, have been uh, in some places and times uh, within, uh, within memory. So once again, instead of the other, and often we've gotten that earthworm gut check in another way, right? Um, that is in the way of Manny calmly talking about something which seems really strange to us and us having to kind of adjust to the fact that this thing which seems to us really bizarre or even unsettling is obviously totally normal to Manny and to Looney society. Here, he's going the other way around. Right. And we got a similar kind of thing with Stu, with that conversation with Stu in the bar after the trial. Um, you know, Stu was kind of our um, spokesperson uh, there as well. Um, his perspective was sort of our perspective there. Um, and um, so. So, yeah, so we, we get it sort of in that direction here, too. But. Um, We've seen from Prof's, that first uh, discussion when Prof was trying to draw out Manny's political philosophy and he wouldn't do it, wouldn't answer any questions. Um, Heinlein has been kind of pushing at this question of the political state, right? Um, how do you see, you know, we, we've seen, um, I, have, I have said that there are, you know, many ways. Uh, you know, I would not characterize this book merely as a utopia, but I do think it has a number of utopian elements to it. Um, there are many ways in which this work, I think, serves as a kind of exploration of a sort of potential one kind of ideal society, right? Um, if we kind of go to this other circumstance, you know, in, in this different environment and imagine a new society which has grown in these ways, um, uh, and then, and there are some things that I think are um, this sort of uh, seem to me to be put forward as something like an ideal um, experiment in human society. That we're, I, that seems to me how we're supposed to receive it. Um, and I think that I, um, 
I think that I see that here as well, not just in the fact that he's trotting out this list of what many would consider reasonable restrictions or some at least would consider obvious needs, um, uh, uh, cultural needs. That is, remember, this same woman is later on going to characterize the prohibitions that she wants to give as evidence to the rest of the world that we are civilized, right? This is what it means to be civilized. And there are so many ways in which uh, uh, Luna is not civilized, right? And yet many of those uncivilized aspects are things that I think are held up, um, seem to me anyway, to be being held up um, for admiration. The main thing that I would point to um, as the, the most idealistic thing to me in this passage is Manny's perspective, Manny's reaction, right? His puzzlement at the mere fact that some people would want to boss other people around, as he goes on to say in that paragraph, ran out of space, but as he went on to say in that paragraph, um, like they're, 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 you know, about there being a yearning deep in the human heart to stop other people from doing as they please. He says, you know, people never make laws, never propose, propose laws to say, like, I know I shouldn't do this thing, so help me stop. Let's make a law to prevent it, right? No, it's always laws to prevent things they don't like to see other people doing um, is what they always is what they always do. Um, this the f the way in which this kind of um, this kind of uh, uh, libertarian um, uh, perspective, right? This, the freedom um, has been something that's been both, uh, been ironically connected with loonies from the very beginning, right? Free Luna uh, has been the slogan, right? From the, uh, uh, f from the start. Um, and that's the irony, right? On the one hand, Luna was not free. Luna was, um, an extreme of not free. It's not just that it was a totalitarian state. It was a prison compound, right? They had a warden for crying out loud, right? They were all, whether they were prisoners or, or, or you know, third generation ex-consignees, they were all treated like inmates, right? So they had no freedom of any kind. And yet, freedom seems to be like bred into the very bones of the loonies, especially loonies like Manny, who seem to just like, they just don't get it. They don't understand why you would even want to make law. It's not about fighting over which restrictive laws we're going to have. They don't want laws at all. Right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, good, Carrie. You're right about um, um, it's You're right that when um, uh, Manny Manny had just a page before been talking about how certain types of loudmouthism uh, should be a capital offense among decent people, and that might seem like hypocrisy. But again, I would point out that that's in keeping. It is a capital offense. Right? That is to say, like, remember what he said to the loudmouth or what he was thinking uh, when he was confronting the loudmouth guy who was asking for his ticket, and not letting him into the meeting back in chapter three. Um, and that was, I wonder how long this guy's life expectancy is. Right. Um, these kinds of bad actors don't last long on Luna. Um, not that he's saying, I want to make a law that says all loudmouths should be executed. 
he doesn't need to make a law about that. Like, that's, that'll just happen uh, on Luna. And again, to me, that's, uh, that's part actually of the, it's like an element of the, uh, uh, of the kind of utopian scheme here. Last comment, though, before I leave this, uh, this slide. Crazy as a cyborg. We, we, we have to mention that. And this, I'm forgetting. Bruce, was it you who wanted to talk about cyborgs before? Somebody else mentioned cyborgs and I had promised we'd come back to it. I can't remember if it was you or Stephen Keen, maybe. One of you um, was uh, saying, let's talk about cyborgs. This is a fascinating reference to cyborgs. Manny has already said he does not believe cyborgs to be people. Um, This is one of the things that gives... We haven't met any cyborgs like that is people that Manny classes as cyborgs. Um, And we're actually never going to except once briefly and indirect. We're not going to spend a long time with him. Right. But we will get um, we will get a cyborg sort of on screen, as it were, um, at one point later on in the story. Okay, Bruce, that was you. That's what I thought. Um, We will get a cyborg on screen. Uh, as it were, at least one point later on in the book. Um, So we'll come back to this then. Um, But Mike does not consider, Manny, sorry, does not consider cyborgs people. Um, And this at least provides some context for why that would be. Um, Again, you'd think part human, part machine, Manny would have much sympathy for that. He is part human, part machine, right? But it's just his arm, right? Um, it's just his arm. And there seems to be something with cyborg's brains. If crazy as a cyborg is a thing, like if that's an expression, since she was obviously crazy as a cyborg, if cyborgs are the standard for craziness here. And I suspect, by the way, my suspicion is that the context in which he's evoking that phrase tells us a little bit, perhaps. I don't know if this is safe to extend it in this way, but... I will anyway, uh, cautiously. Um, The kind of craziness, the species of craziness that he is crediting her with is a kind of like distance from reality, distance from humanity, right? Not seeing things the way that normal people do, right? Not having the same connection with the world around them that everybody else. There's just, there's something, um, again, if it were just her, if she was one isolated crazy person, you know, suggesting all these uh, prohibitions, that'd be one thing. Like, then she's just an exception. She's just crazy as a cyborg, right? But, of course, it turns out not to be. But again, so does that tell us something about the craziness of cyborgs? Um, is there something about their awareness of the world around them? Are they? Do they not interact in the same way that normal people do? I mean, and, and I come back to this as well because I'm thinking of Mike as well, right? Where did... Manny's perception of Mike's personhood come from. And again, the fact that Manny does not consider cyborgs people um, is to me enormously telling. Because again, he's not only himself part machine, um, so it's obviously not just a a hang up about that issue, um, but also he was the one to notice that Mike was a person and the first one to uh, not only recognize it, but freely acknowledge it and relate to it. So it's not like he has a problem extending the concept of personhood to unlikely characters, and you'd think that cyborgs would be less unlikely than Mike the computer. So what was it? Well, 
The thing that led him to believe in Mike's personhood in the first place was communication, right? Mike's awareness of himself, Mike's awareness of the world around him, and Mike's ability to respond and interact um, with Manny in ways that showed he was not just giving automatic programmed responses. As soon as Manny observed that, he said, oh, he's a person. So... I'm guessing, and again here I'm guessing because I don't know much about... Now, um, it's possible that people like Arthur and others who know Heinlein's works uh, better than I do, and this is obviously part of um, sort of a wider imagined world of Heinlein's. I'm guessing that because of, uh, because of Hazel, right, who's the, for, for whom this is a prequel story for uh, you know, a story that she's going to be um, starring in later on. Um, and so, therefore, I'm assuming there's some kind of continuity in the world. So maybe, um, uh, maybe um, we will, um, uh, you know, maybe in those books we see more about cyborgs and there's more data than I have available because I haven't read those. But, um, but in any case, um, I assume that it's that awareness of surroundings. It's that ability to communicate. They must not have it. Cyborgs must not. And yet craziness, it's not just inanimateness or something like that. It's craziness that he associates with cyborgs, um, which is fascinating. Like they, um, someone who's crazy isn't just someone who has, who is not like, is below the threshold of personhood, right? But presumably somebody that has fallen below the threshold of personhood, right? Um, and uh, so, yes, I'm not sure. I'm trying to speculate on very little data here, but this is what, uh, this is what I've got. Now, Bruce, that's a great question. Um, there was mention earlier about Chinese scientists integrating brains with computers. He didn't use the word cyborg about that. Um, and I don't think... Those are cyborgs, exactly. I mean, maybe they would be, um, but that wasn't the context. It wasn't. He didn't talk about that like this. Um, he didn't talk about uh, about those. He seemed interested in those, um, and that is, Manny seemed interested in that, um, and seemed. I don't remember him closing the door on like the possibility of there being, you know sort of good that came from that in a way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I, I, I wanted to acknowledge the cyborg thing and we'll come back to it when we see him again. But, um, uh, but yeah, we don't, um, uh, we don't have much. Stephen Keen, I wonder, I think that's a really good, um, um, a really good question. Um, Stephen says, Mike is a, a machine who's become a person is a cyborg, a person who's become a machine. If I had to guess, I think that that's a really good way to characterize it. I think that's what I'm trying to get at by talking about that, like, dropping down below the person threshold. Like, if Mike, alone of pure machines, as far as anybody knows, has risen above it, right, uh, that, that, that line, that threshold, have cyborgs dropped below it? They were humans. They were people. But now they're less than people. Um, um, that's the vague impression I get. Um, and that seems to me one of the only ways I can think of to explain why Mike would think, or sorry, why Manny would think the way he does 
given how open he seems to be and how obviously manifestly comfortable he is with human with human machine hybrids as a concept right um yeah yeah devora i wonder devora says maybe they're crazy and choosing to become a cyborg maybe that's where the craziness comes in um maybe that's a really good theory devora i think that's maybe that might be possible yeah I don't know. But again, we just don't know enough to be able to draw really firm conclusions, but good theories. Um, Manny's asking Prof why why they're bothering with these Yammer heads. By the way, easily one of my favorite pieces of vocabulary from this book. If there's a um, if there's a single piece of nomenclature from this book that I will likely adopt long term. Um, it is uh, likely to be Yammerhead, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, Prof is explaining to him, besides, there is something we need them for later. Thought you said they could do nothing. They won't do this. One man will write it, a dead man. And late at night, when they are very tired, they'll pass it by acclamation. Who's this dead man? You don't mean Mike. No, no. Mike is far more alive than those yammerheads. The dead man is Thomas Jefferson, first of the rational anarchists, my boy, and one who once almost managed to slip over his, slip over his non-system through the most beautiful rhetoric ever written. But they caught him at it, which I hope to avoid. I cannot improve on his phrasing. I shall merely adapt it to Luna and the 21st century. Um, what we see here is... Now, I'm not going to comment in uh, much length on Prof's reverence for Thomas Jefferson, though that's a, certainly of... Uh, people who know Jefferson and Jefferson's works better than I do... Um, could do much with, you know, compare, you know, uh, some comparison and contrast here um, of, uh, of, you know, Jefferson's works and perspectives and uh, Prof's philosophy, um, uh, examining Prof's claim that Thomas Jefferson was the first of the rational anarchists and all that. I'm not going to go there, mostly because I don't know enough about Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, to speak with much authority on that, apart from the fact it's a little beyond our scope because... We haven't read Thomas Jefferson together, so, you know, um, uh, we don't have enough to talk about that here. I just want to acknowledge that's obviously would be a really interesting thing to do here. Um, What I am most interested in here is what we learn about Prof's strategy. Um, And this is very closely tied, this question is to me very closely tied to the issue that I already mentioned, the issue of Manny's role as a narrator. Um, Manny's role within the revolution and Manny's role as a narrator and our relationship with Manny um, as readers. The question that's really related to those, that's closely related to those issues in my mind is, what is Prof doing? What is Prof's master strategy? We got a glimpse we got a glimpse on Der Tag, right? On the day of the revolution, um, how the extent to which Prof is pulling the strings, 
right? Prof is the true mastermind. Now, you know, Mike is executing everything, right? He's making all these things happen. Um, but it's Prof's strategy, right? Prof is the one who is uh, um, the big picture thinker here, right? Um, what exactly is his thinking? We're not getting it from Manny. That is, Manny's not explaining to us what Prof's big picture plan is. And there seems to be a very good reason for that. Manny doesn't know it. Manny does not know what Prof's plan is. And we can see that here. Prof has to explain this to him. Manny is puzzled. Why are you wasting everybody's time with this ridiculous Congress? Right? Um, and Prof assures him, oh yeah, no, it's not that I am actually letting these people run things. He explains that this is his elaborate way of getting them out of the way. Right? Um, the longer we keep them, they just we just let them debate these issues, which they're never going to come to any decisions anyway, so it doesn't matter at all. Right? Let them talk at each other, and meanwhile, we'll we'll... Um, you know, we'll do the real work over there, right? Put all the nuts in one basket, Carrie. Exactly, exactly. So we, we can see that Prof has, um, uh, uh, what was that phrase? Oh, I'm losing it. Somebody remind me. What was that phrase from the passage from last time that Manny was, that I, I kept quoting last time, like uh, that he didn't have the, uh, what was it, cold, um, it was like cold, distant, um, revolutionist, or cold, shrewd, what was it? I, I forget the phrase, but do you, do you remember the one um, where he's like, Prof had this sort of uh, cold analytical view of what should happen and, and Manny didn't have it? That was when Manny was just wanting to go and stomp on the faces of the uh, peace dragoons who had raped the women. Um, um, yeah, anyway. Um, Mudmore, that's a really good point. Mudmore on Twitch uh, is recalling the tail chasing organization when he when uh, that they set up for the Finks um, to like end up like chasing each other around. And we see them doing a similar thing with the Yammerheads. I think that parallel is really interesting, actually. Um, you've got the uh, the Finks of the authority on the one hand um, and the Yammerheads on the other hand. Um, they're not the same. You know, they don't have the same issues. Right. But um um, but there is a kind of parallel to how uh, Prof is treating them there. Um, but um, but yet also, Prof is going to manipulate them. Um, he is going to use them. We, there's something we need them for. And that is to pass the Declaration of Independence. Right. But even that, he has a complicated plan for how to manipulate the Congress into doing it. Um, even though these people, as Manny is seeing, are obviously not trustworthy in any way at all. Cold, shrewd, revolutionist. Thank you, Carrie. That's the phrase. Um, Prof is the cold, shrewd revolutionist who has the plan and knows what he's doing. And Manny does not. He, Manny, at that time, was referring to the emotional distance, right? Prof was able to keep his emotional distance in that moment and think like a cold, shrewd revolutionist. But that was only the beginning of the split, right? The beginning of the kind of divide between them. And now, um, Manny doesn't have any idea why any of this is happening. Um, and Prof has to explain him to him, except he doesn't even, 
really explain it to him. And we see this as they move forward. So here's uh, the offering of the declaration. So they were going to pass it. Prof knew that before he offered it, but not as written. Honorable Chairman, in second paragraph, that word unalienable is no such word, should be inalienable. And anyhow, wouldn't it be more dignified to say sacred rights rather than inalienable rights? I'd like to hear discussion on this. That Chum was almost sensible, merely a literary critic, which is harmless, like dead yeast left in beer. By the way, I can, I, I, I have great affection for this particular characterization of my profession. Um, um, I like that, I think, should go on a business card, frankly. Um, you know, I'm a literary critic, uh, like dead yeast left in beer. But, well, take that woman who hated everything. She was there with List, read it aloud, and moved to have it incorporated into declaration so that the peoples of Terra will know that we are civilized and fit to take our places in the councils of mankind. Prof not only let her get away with it, he encouraged her, letting her talk when other people wanted to, then blandly put her proposal to a vote when hadn't even been seconded. Congress operated by rules they had wrangled over for days. Prof was familiar with rules, but followed them only as suited him. She was voted down in a shout and left. Okay, so what's happening? What's Prof doing? What exactly is going on here? What do we see? Um... Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. The dead yeast metaphor is fun because dead yeast is dead yeast is inert and totally useless, right? Uh, it doesn't it doesn't actually accomplish anything. Um, so literary critics are harmless like that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, not able to do any good, but not able to do much harm either. <laughs> Mostly harmless, right? That's uh, that's the. Uh, description of uh, literary critics. Um, good. So, Stephen, he's giving the illusion of choice while ensuring they choose what he already decided. Yes, so we do see him deliberately manipulating the assembly into bringing about... So, he's... There are lots of ways you could characterize what Prof is doing here, right? You could characterize it cynically, right? Him, you know, creating the veneer of, uh, you know, democracy and free choice while, in fact... Um, you know, having his will as if he you know, he might as well be the authoritarian dictator, right? Um, uh, for all that his will is nevertheless being done, right? So you could look at it sort of more cynically like that. You could also look at it a little bit more generously, right? Um, he is, uh, he is, uh, notice at the end there, the end of that passage, he's not just preserving the appearance or the form of, of democracy, he 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 preserves the substance of democracy. How does he ensure that that woman, the woman who hates, who's crazy as a cyborg and, and hates everything as Manny characterizes her, right? How does he ensure that she does not get her way? Does he, you know, uh, shout her down? Does he uh, rule her out? Does he, uh, does he have her kicked out? No. He lets her go. Right, lets her propose her thing, puts it to a vote, everybody votes against it, and she leaves. And that's what he was going for in the first. So what did he do? He got rid of her. Right? He got rid of her by her own choice. Has he preserved um, democracy and free choice? He absolutely has. 
right? It was the democracy of the people that voted against her movement, and it was her own free choice to leave and thus disenfranchise herself uh, for everything that happened afterwards, right? Um, so, um, uh, you know, that's, um, it's not merely the veneer. It's not faked. This is not just like, uh, you know, like a dictatorship where like, you know, the dictator is unanimously reelected every year. Like it's not that kind of veneer, uh, of democracy. Um, it's, um, it's a manipulation, right. Of both democracy and free choice. Um, but it's uh, it seems to be premised. Now, he is willing to break the rules, of course, um, as um, Stephen, as you point out, he, he does go against the established rules uh, to do this, though, as many points out, um, those rules are rules set by, down by this Congress itself. Right. Um, uh, they're not, you know, laws, still less natural laws, or perhaps we should say sacred laws. I want to come back to the word sacred, which is, I think, a very important word here. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, yeah, let's talk about that. Well, I don't want to flag it. We'll talk about it later. Um, just remember, remember this congressperson who wanted to, who, who wanted to replace the phrase inalienable rights with sacred rights on the grounds that it would be more dignified to say sacred rights rather than inalienable rights, right? What's the difference? What's the difference between a sacred right and an inalienable right? What's the difference? What are they describing? I mean, rights. They're both describing rights. But, um... What's the, what's the premise of the two? We're adjectives. Inalienable or unalienable, which is apparently what the actual document says, unalienable. Um, unalienable. Yeah, Devor, it has to do with an, with an impossibility. It has. Um, it's a it's a negative word, right? Um, an unalienable right is a right that cannot be separated from us, right? It is impossible to separate that right from us. Sacred right. Um, so, yes. So, Devorah, so as you say, it has to do with an impossibility. Um, and, David, I agree. Um, the, the, uh, the big difference is the assumption about where those rights come from. Unalienable doesn't... Um, doesn't make any such assumption, right? It doesn't say where the rights come from. It doesn't give a, f a grounding for those rights, whereas sacred does. Vaguely, right? It's not a very specific grounding, but it's a vaguely grounds it in in God, right? In some kind of some kind of spiritual authority, right? Um, again, sort of vaguely, but uh, um, but the, the word sacred puts it on that ground, right? Um, sacred implies God-given, right? Um, and there, it's an act of, it would be an act of sacrilege to try to deprive us of these rights. Whereas inalienable or unalienable um, makes no such claim, um, but merely says, this is a right which it is impossible, Devorah, just as you say, impossible 
um, to take away, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ellen, I like that. Ellen says, sacred is something that needs to be preserved. Uh, unalienable is something that can't be gotten rid of. Yes, yes, there is an inevitability to it, right? I agree. But again, let's not forget about the sacred rites. Uh, we'll come back to that later on. Prof never lost dimples. Began to see why Prof had slept all day and was not wearing weights. Remember, this whole meeting started at 10 o'clock at night. Who would do that, right? I mean, just trying to wear people down by starting things at 10 o'clock at night, that's cruel. Um... Me, I was tired, having spent all day in peasuit, out beyond catapult head, cutting in last of relocated ballistic radars, and everybody was tired. By midnight, crowd began to thin, convinced that nothing would be accomplished that night, and bored by any yammer not their own. Was later than midnight, when someone asked why this declaration was dated 4th, when today was 2nd. Prof said mildly that it was July 3rd now, and it seemed unlikely that our declaration could be announced earlier than 4th and that July 4th carried historical symbolism that might help. Several people walked out at an announcement that probably nothing would be settled until 4th of July, but I began to notice something. Hall was filling as fast as was emptying. Um, <laughs> yes, Carrie, it is a little bit like some yammerhead on the East Coast. Indeed. Uh, I think that's why I'm so fond of the word yammerhead, uh, as um, it is... Um, of all of the uh, uh, of all of the vocabulary, the one that best describes myself. Um, but <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, David, I agree. There is a fun little Easter egg here. Um, uh, it's it's a historical joke. Of course, the American Declaration of Independence was actually passed on July second, uh, and there's that wonderful letter from. Uh, uh, who was it? It was Adams, right? John Adams, uh, back to Abigail, I assume, uh, wherein he said, like, and this day, July 2nd, 1776, shall go down in American history. And on the 2nd of July, from now on, we shall celebrate the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the freedom of our nation and everything. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, in retrospect, a really funny, yeah, that's right. With, with fireworks and bonfires. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was, uh, it's a, it's a very funny, uh, letter in retrospect. Um, he was so close to correct <laughs> about that. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah. And of course, and if I'm remembering my history correctly, it was vote, like the vote happened on the second, right? But the signing didn't occur until the fourth. Um, and uh, Adams was strongly of the opinion that like the signing, that was just a formality, right? The vote was the thing. Like it was official as of the second. Uh, so it should not have, it should have been the second, not the fourth. Um, but uh, anyway, so here's Prof. Both, both there's this kind of joke about that, um, but also he's... It's another piece of manipulation. But again, notice the premise upon which he is manipulating the group, right? Um, is he abrogating freedom of choice and democracy? No, he is exploiting freedom of choice and democracy, right? Um, who is it who votes for the Declaration? Um, on the one hand, again, you could say he's rigged the thing, right? Look, there are all these people who are coming in now, ready for the actual vote. Um, you know, Hazel, like the, uh, Hazel and uh, Mimi, right, getting all the kids out of bed and bringing them into the hall. Uh, I mean, you know, like that's um, that's what's 
That's what's going on here, right? So on the one hand, this is like a, a ballot stuffing that's happening here. And yet, it's also just as easy to look at this in a very different way and say, this is, this is democracy by the willing. Everybody had an equal chance to stay and vote on this. Those who haven't are those who gave up too soon, those who just wanted to hear themselves talk, those who were not willing to work together on this, those who were not willing to see it out until the end. Um, yes, Prof did arrange it so that it would be harder to do, but that isn't necessarily underhanded. Um, it merely, to the by contrast, ensured uh, that um, the only people who would be there to vote on the declaration were those who were really invested, were those who cared, were those who were really committed uh, to the cause, to Luna itself, and not just to their own self-importance. Um, uh, now, again, David, I'm not arguing that it's not at all underhanded. There's definitely underhanded stuff going on here. Um, but it also fits Prof's principles. And those principles are not, those are not low. This is, this is not just a means versus ends issue, I think, right? That like the declaration itself is worthwhile. So it's okay to like lie and cheat on the way to doing it. Right. Um, but as I have pointed out before, we have a lot of those kind of, uh, moral uncertainties uh, in this story. And, and so here again is another one. As I say, with this, as with the, as with, you know, the rest of it, as I've just been talking about, you can look at it, you, you could take a cynical view. You can take a cheerful view, right? Um, you can see this as very admirable by Prof, or you can see this as extremely underhanded and, and shady uh, by Prof. Both of them fit perfectly well. And... Um, Heinlein, I think, remains uh, fascinatingly, I won't say exactly neutral on this, but um, um, he, but yeah, no, I'll stick with it. He, he remains fairly neutral on this. He allows us to see the underhanded nature of it, right? Um, I think Prof is definitely being held up for admiration here. I don't think the narrator is completely neutral, because of course not. It's Manny. He's committed to this, and he sees what's going on, right? And he admires what's happening. Um, uh, but I also wouldn't put this in the same category as them being willing to put other people in harm's way um, with the Peace Dragoons in order to build up outrage among the people, right? Um Yes, Carrie. And then Mike appears, right? Then Mike shows up on the video screen. Um, last thing I'd point out here before we uh, leave from this slide. Notice again, Manny has no idea. Manny is not in the know. And notice another interesting thing. It's not just that Manny is not in the know, whereas, like, you know, that, like, there's Prof and Mike... Uh, you know, there, there used to be like the four of them, right? The, the, the executive cell, Mike and Manny and Prof and Wyo, right? And of late, there seems to be this kind of increasing distance where we have Mike and Prof and then Manny now in a kind of a clearer second tier, it would seem like less, less on the inner circle, right? Less, less in the know about things. But here, he seems to be like least in the know of anybody in the room, Right. 
I mean, even even Mum and Hazel seem to be more in the know, right? They got the memo to show up. Manny didn't get the memo, right? He didn't have any. He was not tipped off at all as to what was happening. Um. Uh, yeah, and Carrie, you're right. To the by contrast, um, he has spent all day in a pea suit out beyond the catapult head. Right now, I'm not saying necessarily that they were keeping Manny out of the way on purpose, right? But he was definitely not included in what's happening here. Now he's still here, right? It's not like he was disinvited or something like that. I don't think that. Again, I'm not suggesting that he is that they're, um, uh, you know, trying to push Manny out exactly. But he's very far here. He's further than we've ever seen him from being in the know, right? Not only is he not in the epicenter, he's barely on the periphery here. Um, he seems to be literally, well, only the yammer, only the other Yammerheads um, seem to be less well-informed than Manny at this particular moment. Um, then, of course, they ask for volunteers to go to Luna, but of course it doesn't really matter because they've already made up their mind who's going to go to Luna. Um, and but now we have to break it to Manny. Mike will provide the ship, Prof went on. He has completed its design, and it is being worked on. He has? It is? Since when is Mike engineer? Isn't he? asked Prof. I started to answer. Shut up. Mike had no degrees. Simply knew more engineering than any man alive. Or about Shakespeare's plays, or riddles, or history. Name it. Tell me more. Manuel. We'll go to Terra as a load of grain. What? Who's we? You and myself. The other volunteers are merely decorative. I said, look, Prof, I've stuck. Worked hard when whole thing seemed silly. Worn these weights, got them on now, on chance I might have to go to that dreadful place. But contracted to go in a ship, with at least a cyborg pilot to help me get down safely. Did not agree to go as meteorite. He said... Very well, Manuel. I believe in free choice, always. Your alternate will go. I believe in free choice, always. Right? Uh, that, would, uh, that would certainly be on Prof's business card. Right? Uh, Professor de la Paz. I believe in free choice, always. Um, and yet, of course, in saying that, he's manipulating Manny. <laughs> right? Um, uh, no, no, it's fine. Uh, your alternate will go. And of course, his alternate is Wyo. Um, and when Manny hears that, he is not going to have that. He's not going to have, he's not going to, um, refuse to go, uh, in the grain bin and make Wyo go in his place. So he's definitely going to go once he hears that. This is the, um, uh, inescapable way to make Manny's free choice go in the direction that Prof wants it to go in. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly. As Carrie says, I will not quibble to push you into a corner to make you freely choose this one choice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, first, notice again the resistance to Mike flares up. His, uh, he has a first impulse to question Mike's abilities again. Since when is Mike engineer? Isn't he? And then, so he's about to say, no, he's not an engineer. And then he's like, oh, wait, actually, yeah. Um, 
he kind of is, right? And once again, I think we see Manny had pigeonholed Mike. And I think this is the pigeonholing of, I think this is that parental thing, that avuncular thing we were talking about before. Um, uh, sometimes one does have a tendency to uh, underestimate one's kids, right? Uh, just because one can't help but, uh, you know, uh, remember them as toddlers and such, right? Um so it, it happens, right? It happens that you underestimate your kids in that way because you still see them uh, as uh, as kids, right? First and foremost. Uh, and I, that seems to me kind of what he's doing here. But he immediately catches himself. In Manny's defense, he immediately catches himself and simply goes to, tell me more. Um, Manny... Uh, yeah, Ellen, I wonder. Ellen is wondering if maybe Manny is thinking of him as being too human, forgetting he has superhuman, supercomputer uh, capacity. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe in some ways it's possible. Um, <laughs> interesting, Stephen thinks that he's... Uh, it's not that he pigeonholed Mike. It's that he pigeonholed engineers. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Devorah, I, I, I hear you feeling bad uh, for Manny here. Um that is something I'm going to be interested to track, Devora. Um, our relationship, emotional relationship with Manny, right? Because again, I think as we get, as this distance that I was talking about begins to open up more and more, um, it will have more and more of a sort of an impact on this. He's not only, not only did he not come up with this plan, not only was he not part of the team who came up with this plan. Manny is actively resistant to this plan. And it's not only that. Both Prof and Mike have obviously planned in advance not only to do this plan in Manny's... like Not only have they planned this in Manny's absence, they have planned in advance in Manny's absence how to manipulate Manny into doing it, right? Anticipating Manny's resistance and um, uh, and preparing in advance for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Stephen, I think you're right. Um, uh, Stephen points out that, uh, Manny seems to, about to s suggest that an engineer is someone with a degree before he corrects himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Good. So Ellen, I agree. He seems to be becoming necessary, but irrelevant at the same time. And I agree. There's a real irony, uh, to Manny's position here. Right. It's easy to say he's being pushed further and further out to the periphery, that he's less and less in the inner circle, making decisions about the revolution and what happens. And yet he is more and more essential. Um, the thing, the decisions that are being made are premised upon his being necessary, right? How and why that's exactly what it will be. Um, so fascinating to see, right? One more, then we'll stop. Manny's still worried about the trip. Right. He's not sure that uh, this is going to go well. Right. Um, and he's, um, uh, you know, griping about the experience of, uh, you know, whether or not they'll be able to survive going down as a meteorite. Um, and uh, he's asking Mike here about the um, uh, the gravitational shifts. Right. As they uh, as they are launched. 
Not high, man. 10 gravities at injection, then that programs down to a steady soft 4 Gs. Then you'll be nudged again between 6 and 5 Gs just before splash. The splash itself is gentle, equal to a fall of 50 meters, and you enter Ogive first? I don't understand that word. I don't know if that's a typo, or I just don't know the word. But anyway, you enter Ogive first with no sudden shock, less than 3 Gs. Then you surface and splash again, lightly, and simply float at 1 G. Man, those barge shells are built as lightly as possible for economy's sake. We can't afford to toss them around, or they would split their seams. How sweet. Mike, what would 6 to 5 Gs do to you? Split your seams? I conjecture that I was subjected to about 6 gravities when they shipped me up here. Six gravities in my present condition would shear many of my essential connections. However, I'm more interested in the extremely high, transient accelerations I am going to experience from shockwaves when Terra starts bombing us. Data are insufficient for projection, for prediction, but I may lose control of my outlying functions, man. This could be a major factor in any tactical situation. Mike, you really think they are going to bomb us? Count on it, man. That is why this trip is so important. Um, two quick things. I won't spend too much time on this slide because it's time to let you guys go. But um, uh, first thing, notice the deft response, right? Mike, notice the subtlety of Mike's shift here, right? Mike immediately puts this into con without saying anything blunt or rude or anything like that, like we might expect somebody with, you know, the social graces of a computer, right? Uh, no, he, um, he immediately, you know, however, I'm more interested in the extremely high transient accelerations I'm going to experience from shockwaves when Terra starts bombing us, right? That's the real concern. <laughs> Keep your eye on what's important here, Manny. Like, uh, we've got to do this in order to prevent... Um, Terra from bombing us. Um, the way, the deft way in which he changes the subject and totally recontextualizes things and therefore motivates Mike, uh, reminding Mike of why he's going to do this, why he should be willing to risk himself at least, if not sacrifice himself, um, at least subject himself to extreme discomfort, risking potential injury or death because um, it is absolutely essential. Um, because of the threat of bombing uh, that is looming over them. Um, oh, and Ogive is the head of a nuclear bomb. Okay. I did not know that. A roundly tapered end of a two-dimensional or three-dimensional object, right? So like the end of a missile, like the like a missile head. Okay. Ogive, huh? Ogive? Soft G? Ogive. That is a new piece of vocabulary for me. Okay. All right. Anyway, um, so yeah, Ellen is wondering if Mike is picking up on Prof's manipulative traits. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. But he's he's doing it really well. Again, um, Mike is managing Manny here. And again, what a huge step forward. What now? It's suddenly gone to role reversal here, right? Um, but the last thing I want to emphasize is Mike's last comment there. Count on it, man. That is why this trip is so important. 
So we didn't quite get down to Earth. We almost got down to Earth. Next time we'll start down on Earth. Um, and um, we're going to be looking at... Um, so we're, we're going to be looking at their time on Earth. Um, I want to do a couple things there. First, keep in mind what I've been talking about, about that distance, that narrative distance uh, with Manny uh, as narrator. But also, think about that sentence from Mike. That is why this trip is so important. <clears throat> okay, so I'm to understand, right? I mean, what Mike seems to be telling me is that this trip is so important because it's necessary to prevent the bombing, right? I mean, it would be very bad. Yes, going down in a canister is going to be bad, but the Terra bombing Luna would be much worse, wouldn't it? So let's undertake the lesser evil in order to prevent the greater evil. That seems the obvious implication here. It's all riding on their trip to Terra. If they succeed in their mission on Terra, they can prevent the bombing of Luna. That's what it's all about, right? I mean, that seems to be what Mike is saying here. All right. Um, let's stop it there, and we will continue for next time. So here's what I want to do. Let's... I want to be a little reckless. I say, Let's read th through the end of book two. I say this not because... I have any aspirations of totally finishing book two next week, but because I am um, uh, hopeful that um, I, or there, there's a chance I might want to jump around a little bit. So read through, I think it's chapter 22. So it's five chapters, five whole chapters for next week. Um, uh, so th through the end of book two, and then we'll, we'll see how much we do and how far we go uh, for next time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. I will be here next week. <clears throat> so just like update on my own uh, uh, schedule for here for the rest of the summer. I'm going to be here for the next two weeks. So this week plus the next two weeks, I'll be I'll be home. Uh, then I go off on my long road trip uh, to take my son to college. Um, uh, all this talk tonight about uh, your kids growing up and, uh, uh, you know, the the how parents look at kids uh, and everything is uh, kind of striking home with me right now with my kid going off to college. Uh, but anyway, um, so that'll be, I'll, I, I think I'll be out for two weeks at the end of August, but be here for the next two weeks after this. So, all right. Thanks everybody. Uh, have a good night. Talk to you later.